0: Everybody, thank you so much for coming to the Fantasy Fallacy Workshop. We're going to dive right in with some discussion questions for your table. I'm just going to give you a few brief seconds to discuss these questions, and then I'm going to poll you for your answers. Here's the first question. Oh, I've got the clicker. Here's the first question. Was Jesus tempted sexually? Did he ever have sexual thoughts and feelings? Discuss amongst yourselves. What do you think? Was Jesus tempted sexually? What makes you say yes? Because the Bible tells us he was tempted in every way. And there's no asterisk that says, well, except for sexually, because he wasn't one of those kind of guys. No, he was tempted in every way known to human beings, not just to men, but to women also. He was tempted in every way. So here's the next question. Are sexual thoughts and feelings sinful? discuss amongst yourselves that's always the standard answer yeah okay so if jesus was tempted sexually and he had sexual thoughts and feelings because how do you have a temptation without having a single thought or feeling then are sexual thoughts and feelings sinful no it's what you do with them but i always hear at least one person in the crowd say this would you say it again my darling? Outside of marriage he said well any thoughts or feelings outside of marriage would be sinful But here's the thing who was jesus's spouse Are we going to have sexual thoughts and feelings about other people besides the person that we're married to on occasion Yes, we don't get blinders that come with marriage that we only have eyes for that partner It'd be so great if it did But the reality is we have sexual thoughts and feelings about a wide variety of experiences and people and all of that, but it's not sinful unless you what? Act out on it. That's right. I love what Martin Luther said. You can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep him from building a nest there. So let's uh, talk about this one. What came first, the fall of man or sexual intimacy? All right, sounds like y'all are a pretty biblically knowledgeable crowd. Yes, sexual intimacy came before the fall of man. So is there anything sinful about married sex between a husband and a wife? Absolutely, positively not. But you'd be amazed at how many people assume that, well, sex is dirty and bad. And yeah, but God makes an allowance for it in marriage. No, God created it as a perfect sinless part of marriage. But then the fall of man crept in and made it bleed way outside its borders of marriage. Is it possible for a married couple to enjoy a healthy sex life with absolutely no guilt, shame, or inhibition? Should be. And so here's the final question. Is it possible for Christians to talk openly about sexuality with absolutely no guilt, shame, or inhibition? Gosh, I hope so. I hope so, because let me just go ahead and give you a disclaimer right now. If you think that this is going to be the candy-coated version of a sex talk, you're in the wrong place. Um, we are going to talk about pretty much all things sexual, a wide gamut of them anyway, and we're going to talk very... um Somewhat graphically about them, only in the sense of, I need you to understand. Yeah, There's, there's a certain principles that I can best relate to you through case studies. And so, if you're the type of person who feels as if you'd be triggered by any open, honest dialogue on this topic, then I just want to give you full permission to jump ship now. I would rather you jump ship now than in the middle of, you know, of, of the talk. So, by all means, it will not offend me in the least if you feel as if this workshop might be too much for you or too intense. But um, I feel like we've been candy-coating it for far too long as Christians, and it's the church's responsibility to go deep in this topic and dispel a lot of the myths and create a lot more knowledge around it. So let's go to the next slide here. Let's talk about the seven distortions of sexuality, which happened from the dawn of time. Um, Satan has no new tricks. In Genesis alone, sexuality was distorted seven different ways— We've got polygamy, homosexuality, fornication, rape, prostitution, incest, and evil seduction. So people automatically assume that sexual fantasy, which often includes a lot of these different types of things, is that any kind of fantasy must be bad, it must be sinful. But let's remember that fantasy is really just a progression of thoughts that meet a psychological need. And are thoughts a sin? Are sexual thoughts a sin? No. If sexual thoughts create a feeling in you, is it a sin? No. It's what you do with those feelings that make it a sin or not. If you're channeling all that sexual energy directly into your marriage bed, you are not sinning. And for for women especially, they really struggle with this whole notion of letting themselves fantasize. They want to stop that thought dead in its tracks in their brain. But here's the thing. Boy babies and girl babies, when they are conceived, they are identically, um, yeah, their, their genitalia are identical. What happens after, I think, the, about the fourth month of gestation is that if there's certain Y chromosomes, the uh, clitoris sprouts and becomes a penis. So you can imagine that the clitoris and the penis basically serve the same function. That's where the, the, this the primary location of the majority of our sexual nerves. That's where they're located. And so envision, let me ask you this question. You'll probably laugh and that's okay. Is it possible for a man to have sex with a penis in this position? that is flaccid. No. What has to happen? It has to become erect. It has to fill with what? Blood. How does it fill with blood? The pituitary gland sends messages that says send more blood flow there. What causes his pituitary gland to send the blood flow there? His brain. Thoughts in the brain. For So if the male and female genitalia are basically very similar in that regard, for women who are saying, I will not let a sexual thought come into my mind, God would not be pleased with that, that would be sinful, what do you think happens to their libido? That's why I think women work themselves into their own state of frigidity is if they won't even let a sexual thought come into their mind that will create feelings that will lead to action in the marriage bed, then they're cutting off all possibility of sexual pleasure before it even starts because of the gate that they are closing in their mind. You have to open that gate to some sort of sexual thought to send a message to the pituitary gland, to send blood flow to the clitoris. And if there's not blood flow to the clitoris, it could be very uncomfortable. It could even be painful. It can feel like he's just pushing the elevator button, trying to make it go somewhere. And she's just like, that's not doing anything for me. When the reality is, is until she gets blood flow to that part of her body, no kind of stimulation is going to do anything for her. But when it's engorged, when there's blood flow there because she's thinking sexually, uh, sexual thoughts and she's feeling sexual feelings, then any amount of touch, whether that's with his fingers or tongue or penis or whatever, then it's sexually stimulating. So we have to especially teach women that you need to open your mind to sexual thoughts and fantasies in order to prepare your body for what you're hoping to have happen. So let's not throw fantasy out as if it's, you know, like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Let's, uh, let's look at how, has, how is fantasy actually a friend? I'll just zip through these very quickly. Number one, fantasy can numb us to unbearable pain. How I know this is my daughter had an accident when she was 16. She, her car hit a tree. Her face went through the windshield. She took the rearview mirror off with her ear. I'm standing beside her in the emergency room while they are stitching her ear back on. She has no eyebrow. I mean, just the whole side of her face was mangled. And I was so freaked out for her. And I just said, Aaron, let's go on a fantasy trip. Where do you want to go? The Great Barrier Reef. What are we going to do there? We're going to scuba dive. Who are we going to take? Terrica and Sharon. And how are we going to get there? Jet plane. What else are we going to do? 30 minutes later, the doctor says, okay, we're all done. We got your ears stitched back on. She said, mom, that was amazing. I didn't feel a thing because her brain went somewhere else. Her brain fantasized about something else. Isn't that what children do when they're being traumatized? Their brain goes somewhere else. When they're being sexually abused or something is happening that they simply can't handle, the brain is wired that you can leave and go somewhere else. Isn't that a gift from God? Isn't that a gift from God? So number two, it motivates us toward an established goal. If you wanna lose a hundred pounds, you should just keep visualizing and fantasizing about what life is gonna feel like when you're a hundred pounds lighter and it keeps you motivated. Number three, it helps us prepare for a life transition. I have long heard that, oh, when your children leave the nest, oh, that's such a traumatic time for a woman. Oh, she starts shutting down and she loses her identity. And it's like, nope, I'm going to fantasize about the opposite. I'm like, when I launch my children strong out of the nest and they stand on their own two feet and we get to cut the apron strings and we get a big fat raise and we can have all the sex we want in our empty nest and... And now my kids are 20 and 23, and technically we have an empty nest. My daughter's working on grad school in New York. My son lives in the garage apartment out back. He only comes over when he needs food or a tuition check, which suits us fine. So fantasizing about how great life is going to be has helped us ease into this season with grace. Number four, it warns us about a possible future event. One of my coaching clients contacted me and said, I'm so scared that I'm going to fall into this affair with this guy that I see on a train every single day on my way home from work. And I said, well, what in the world makes you think that you're going to have an affair? And she said, well, that just it just keeps popping up in my mind that... Because we ride the same train every day, he's eventually going to notice me and he's going to strike up a conversation and we're going to get off at the same stop. And it's just going to, you know, she just let it spin totally out of control in her head. I said, well, how about if you just fantasize about a completely different direction? That if he sits down next to you and tries to strike up a conversation, you're going to have a novel in your briefcase and you're going to exchange pleasantries. And then you're going to go right to your novel as if to say, yeah, I'm done with this conversation. And it'll never develop into an affair. Three months later, she contacts me and that exact same scenario played itself out. He sits down, he strikes up a conversation because they kept running into each other every single day. She played the scenario out the same way that she'd rehearsed it and boom, no affair. So fantasize in the right direction. Uh, Number five, it helps us endure separation. Women ask, is it okay that I fantasize about my husband sexually while he's deployed in Iraq? You better. You better keep those home fires burning, and he better be fantasizing about coming home to her. Absolutely. Why would there be anything wrong with that? But we've been taught all sexual thoughts are dirty, bad, sinful, and it's just not true. And then finally, it can comfort us as we age. I do a radio show called Sexy Marriage Radio with Dr. Corey Allen. There was a guy who emailed us as a result of one of the shows, and he said... um, he said, is it a sin that when I fantasize about my wife, I fantasize what it was like 30 years ago before we started aging and worrying about Alzheimer's setting in? Which, by the way, remind me to come back to Alzheimer's in just a second, okay? Um, before erectile dysfunction became such an issue, all of that kind of stuff. Remind me to come back to erectile dysfunction. Um <laughs> He was fantasizing about his wife's younger days when they had a lot more energy and time and passion for one another. I said, why in the world would you think that that would be a sin? To fantasize about the good old days of what it was like. Don't we do that with music? Oh, music's just never the same. Like, we, we do that. We, we rewind the tape and we relive the glory days. What would be wrong with an aging couple remembering how great it was but celebrating what they can still do? So, okay, I said I was going to come back to Alzheimer's. Did you know that the number one preventative measure that every human being can take to prevent Alzheimer's is frequent orgasm because it lights up every part of the brain like no other activity. Can we just have a yay God on that? Yay God? And I don't care when erectile dysfunction becomes an issue because here's the thing. It doesn't matter when he can't cut the mustard anymore as long as he can still lick the jar. (laughs) You just got to fantasize about new ways to think outside the box and all that Just So yeah, fantasy is our friend. God wired. Our, y'all can use that in the blog, Brad and Kate. Fantasy is our friend. God wired our brains to entertain these thoughts and to have sexual imaginations. And we need to incorporate that into our repertoire of lovemaking. Because again, if we shut it down, what else do we shut down? Our sexual energies and that's not very fun. I'm sorry, but for either a man or a woman just to lay there and say, well, whatever you need to do, just get it over with. But I don't want to think about it. I don't want to feel it. Stop. This is not God's intention. God intended it to be an incredibly pleasurable, vibrant experience between a husband and a wife. But again, we think that all sexual thought is sin. And the reason that we so often think that is because of this particular passage of Scripture. In Matthew five twenty seven 27-29, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he, make, he makes reference to what the Pharisees have been saying and Jesus adds to it. So we're gonna read the passage and then I'm gonna explain the larger context. We were just having a conversation in the back of the room about how you can't take a passage of scripture out of context and, and ascribe meaning to it. You have to understand who was the speaker, who is he speaking to, what was happening in the culture at the time that made him say that. What did he say just before it? What does he say just after it? You have to look at it through a hermeneutical lens to properly interpret that scripture. But people have focused in on this you have heard it that it was said you must not be guilty of adultery but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman and wants to sin sexually with her in his mind he has already done that sin with the woman if your right eye causes you to sin take it out and throw it away it is better to lose one part of your body than to have your whole body thrown into hell and we translated that to mean that all sexual thoughts are sin and can throw you into hell is that what Jesus intended to say the entire church should be walking around blind, but even physical blindness would not be enough to cure our lust problem. And so there's a couple of things we need to look at here. Number one, who was he referring to? And what was he referring to? The Pharisees had been talking about how they have no use for this Messiah. They have no use for what it is that he's preaching and teaching because they were, they were pure enough. To get themselves into heaven because they observed the law. Not only did they observe the Torah, they had added a bunch of other laws and they even lived by those. And that Jesus was basically saying, uh, guys, that whole law thing that you live by, that's not enough to get you into heaven, even if you keep 100% of that law. And then he wanted to reach and use a particular example of something that they did every single day as naturally as breathing. And he used the illustration of if you even look at a, upon a woman and even think about having sex with her, that is enough to keep you out of heaven. But this passage is not a sexual doctrine. This passage is about eternal salvation and our need for Jesus to accomplish uh, or to accept, to receive eternal salvation. So let's get the notion out of our mind that Jesus was saying that any sexual thought that you have is enough to get you into hell because that's not what he was saying at all. Can I get an amen on that? Because if it was, there's not gonna be anybody in heaven. I'm sorry, but if, if that's the, the measuring stick, then none of us are going to get into heaven. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. He was not using a measuring stick to determine who's getting into heaven and who's getting into hell. He was saying that short of the blood that I'm about to shed for you, that even this innocent little sin that you do so often is enough to keep you out of heaven. Okay. And so now that we have that theological underpinning down, let's talk about. Uh, the 10 things that effective counselors understand about fantasy. So I take it that the handouts made it in here. Great, great, great. Okay. So the number one thing is that many Christians believe that any sexual thought is sinful, but that does not line up with scripture, as I just said, and it will impact your marriage and many other marriages to the nth degree. I'm sorry, but let let me just ask the sound of something. Do you have a little clip thing that I can use to keep this from like falling down my neck, Danielle? Do you have a little clip or I don't care if it's a bobby pin, stapler, (laughs) (laughs) epoxy? (laughs) Yeah, anything. I just keep feeling like I'm being pulled backwards. Um, It will impact your marriage in some very negative ways. In fact, I wrote this little book several years ago that created, thank you, that created quite the hubbub. It's called The Sexually Confident Wife about connecting with your husband. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, it was about connecting with your husband, mind, body, heart, and spirit. And after that book was published, the reason that it created so much hubbub is because the um, the hardback version, I included sketches in it. Not pictures. Oh, scandalous. Um, <laughs> It wasn't pictures of real airbrushed Abercrombie and Fitch supermodels like we're used to seeing in the books and going, well, I don't look anything like that, so I I guess I can't be sexually confident. I told the publisher, I want sketches of real women with cellulite ripples, stretch marks, saggy boobs, pregnant bellies, flat chests. I want real women so that when women look at these pictures, they go, well, I'm at least that hot, if not hotter. (laughs) And then they feel really sexually confident. But when the paperback version came out, they were like, well, we better tone it down and take the pictures out. But I, if I told you how much of an advance they gave me for the fact that you know I had this great idea with these sketches in it, you would choke. But I told them I'm not giving you the advance back just because you take the pictures out. And they were like, that's fine, that's fine. But anyway, we released that book, and it was quite scandalous because I had these sketches in it. And um, I got a phone call from a woman who said, my husband and I are the owners of one of the largest Christian bookstore chains in North America. And we are choosing to carry your book, The Sexually Confident Wife, in our Christian bookstore, even though it was written for the mainstream market. The reason I wrote it for the mainstream market is because I wanted—I didn't want a can- another candy-coated book about sex. There's plenty of those Christian books out there. So it had to go through a main through a mainstream publisher But people could tell that I was a christian because of my you know points of view and my worldview, and all that kind of stuff But she said we're choosing to carry it in the christian bookstore Because of my personal testimony. Would you mind if I just share a little bit of that with you? And I could tell by her voice that she was quite elderly and I felt so honored that she would even make this call and initiate this conversation She said shannon, we've been married 52 years And at 30 years, we were headed to divorce court. And my husband said to me the week that our divorce was supposed to be final, would you please just consider seeing a counselor about your sexual hangups? Because I feel as if that's the only reason for this divorce. And so she went to see a counselor. And back then, the only one she could find was a male counselor. But she explained... What the situation was and he said, well, what is it that exactly causes you to hit the wall? What is the hurdle exactly? And she said, well, I'm just afraid that the feelings or the the thoughts that come into my head and the feelings that those create that God sees those and surely he would be displeased. And he said, Well, you know, if God wired your brain in such a way that your husband's touch makes you think sexual thoughts and that creates sexual feelings and that that turns you on, isn't that a blessing rather than a burden? What if you just reframed it and looked at it differently? So she decided that rather than give up the marriage, she would give up the guilt behind her fantasy life and she went back home and told her husband about the breakthrough that she hoped to have. And so they re-engaged in their sex life. And she said, Shannon, over the past 22 years, our sex life has been hotter than it ever was in the first 30. And she said, in fact, at 72 years old, I have more intense orgasms than I have ever had in my entire life. And I thought, hallelujah, maybe the best is yet to come for all of us, you know, no pun intended. (laughs) And so, yes, I I think, oh, she's got some tape. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can just tape it to my neck. I don't care. Awesome. So number two, uh, and we're going to refer back to that. Oh, we're not going there yet. Sorry. Yeah. Number two, again, in Matthew five twenty-seven through 29, Jesus was addressing the Pharisees notion that they were holy enough to get themselves into heaven. But this passage is primarily about eternal salvation, not sexual doctrine. And number three, in Matthew 5, 29, Jesus said, gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. Yet he knew that physical blindness wouldn't be sufficient to cure us of our sexual depravity. He wasn't telling us to maim ourselves, but merely urging us to take sin seriously. And the best definition of lust, you know, when we talk about lustful thoughts, came up uh, in a conversation between me and James Robinson when I was doing the Life Today show with and Betty. And he said, lust is not looking at a person and thinking, wow, they're really attractive or I even find them arousing. Lust is looking at a person and trying to figure out a way to get alone with them so that you can make something happen that shouldn't be happening with someone who doesn't belong to you. Yeah, because who in our society can possibly look at George Clooney or Heidi Klum and not think, wow. But we just have to go, wow, God, you make fine art. And we just keep walking. (laughs) We don't start stalking George Clooney or stalking Heidi Klum. We don't try to get alone with them. We just go, wow, some people are really sexually attractive beings. And we, then we take those sexual thoughts, feelings, energy, and we channel it directly into our marriage bed. And that is keeping the river between its banks. That is not letting your river overflow its banks. Okay. Number four Sexual fantasies are simply the brain's way of trying to heal itself from past trauma As I said in the earlier session Disillusionment or disappointment It's not necessarily an indicator of sickness or perversion I'm going to share a series of case studies with you Over the course of the past uh, 10 years of of me doing life coaching and focusing on this topic I have so many more that I could share, but I've tried to boil it down to just really teach you this skill, this art of recognizing that sexual fantasies are really just the brain's way of trying to heal itself. So there's a couple who came into my office and she was quite angry with the husband because he had gone on a business trip and had taken... Unopened packages of pantyhose and offered two of his coworkers the opportunity to trade in their used pantyhose for a brand new set of unopened ones if they would just give him their dirty ones. He had a pantyhose fetish and he was mortified that one of these coworkers had reported him to his boss. He had been mandated to get counseling or else he was going to lose his job. And of course, his wife was absolutely livid over the entire situation. And so I asked him, have you ever considered what the root of this fantasy is? Obviously, you've tasted the fruit and it's very bitter, very painful, but what is the root? And he just looked at me and he said, you mean the root of why I'm a pervert? I said, I don't think that you're a pervert at all. I said, I think that pantyhose represents something to you that goes way back into your childhood, that goes way back into your psyche. And once we help you make that connection, it will lose its power over you. And so I asked him to just tell me about his childhood. And he explained that he had two much older brothers. He was a change of life baby. So he was like seven years younger than his two older brothers. And that his two older brothers were always doing fun stuff, riding their dirt bikes and all that kind of jazz. And and his mother wouldn't let him go out and do that because that was too dangerous for a little boy. And so Stan was relegated to playing with the only person available, and that was his grandmother who lived next door. So when his brothers were off doing big adventures, he was going over to visit grandmother. And he said he remembers that his grandmother would sit in her recliner, and she would cross her legs and perch him on her ankle and give him pony rides. You remember doing that to children? And that it wasn't long before he realized at around three years old that when she had pantyhose on, it felt better than when she didn't. And he even remembers, he thinks maybe he was about four because he knows he wasn't in kindergarten yet, that uh, she was in the kitchen in in her robe and slippers and he went to her bedroom and opened up all of her dresser drawers until he found a pair of pantyhose and went in and said, here, granny, put these on and give me a pony ride. And then to exacerbate the issue, several years later, when he was about 12, his older brother brings home his fiance and he notices that she's very pretty And she was wearing pantyhose. And so one day while they're out and about, he sneaks into the guest room where her suitcase is. And he finds the pantyhose that she was wearing the day before. And he proceeds to have a little masturbatory fun with these pantyhose. And she walks in and catches him red-handed. But rather than being, you know, mortified, walking out, telling her brother, she just leaned in and said, Shh, we'll just keep this our little secret. So it reinforced this notion. So you can envision that pantyhose represented bonding. It represented closeness. It represented somebody's interested in playing with me or someone trusts me. It, just, it, it represented so much to him. But I asked him, I said, but what about the fact that your wife doesn't want you aroused by the scent of another woman? She only wants you to be aroused by her scent. And she said, and I have no problem sharing my pantyhose with him. I knew he had a pantyhose fetish when I married him. And I said, really? I said, and that didn't bother you? And she said, heavens no, my first husband's fetish was child pornography. So the idea that he liked pantyhose felt like nothing. So they were able to just get on the same page that, you know what, we understand where this fetish comes from, what it represents, but you have to limit it to just your wife, no one else. And he was able to keep his job. And move on. So, again, just recognizing the connections there can really set people free to just live within the boundaries and not do dangerous, stupid stuff. Number five, sexual fantasies are not a reliable roadmap toward future fulfillment, but rather a roadmap of our rocky past. Understanding today's fantasy will often reveal yesterday's unresolved pain. Just last Friday, I had a three-hour session with a couple And the situation was that while she was at one of my Women at the Well workshops, which you have information on your table about, uh, and she was sifting and sorting and separating her sexual baggage from her childhood where she she had been human trafficked as a teenager. I mean, it was just horrendous the things that she had to experience. But then when she went back home, she discovered that her husband had been caught at a restaurant with another woman by another couple in their church who said, either you tell your wife or we're going to tell your wife. And so he admitted to her that during the entire six years of their marriage, he had had numerous encounters with women, but it was always women who meant nothing to me. And it was like, well, what is the root of being with a woman who means nothing to you? And why would you choose a woman who means nothing to you when you have this stunningly beautiful woman who means the world to you, totally available to you? And so we did a a 20 most pivotal moments exercise. And what I learned is that when he was 11 years old, uh, his grandfather was his best friend, lived a mile down the road. He spent all of his time in his grandparents' house when his, when his parents were at work and during the summers. His, grandparent, or his, his granddad taught him how to be a man. Just a, a deep, deep bond there. Well, his granddad got sick and wound up in the hospital. But this particular man, I'll just call him Casey, uh, Casey had chicken pox. And so his parents wouldn't let him go to the hospital to visit his granddad. But his granddad died. After two weeks in the hospital. And he never got the chance to say goodbye. And how he found out his granddad died. Was he picked up the phone receiver. When his aunt was calling his mom to say. Oh my gosh daddy just died. So he learned indirectly. So there was no one to immediately comfort him. Because nobody knew that he even knew. But he made a a vow in his mind. Right then and there. While all this was happening in his family. And nobody was realizing. Just how overwhelmingly traumatic this was. Especially for Casey. Because they were all focused on their own pain. He made a vow. I will never get that close to anybody again because I will never feel this kind of pain. So what was he doing when he was taking his sexual energies to women that he cared nothing about? He was acting out that vow of, I don't want to get too close to my wife because what if she dies too? And then I'm going to feel that pain all over again. So I'm going to keep enough distance there that I'll never hurt like that again. But for us to rewind the tape and let him grieve that loss and cry those tears and and wail those wails and sobs, very, very therapeutic to him to give that 11-year-old boy a voice and to have his wife hold him and speak to him as if she was his mother. When you recreate a scenario and let them win this time or get the comfort that they needed this time, it is a very transformational experience. So let's move on to number six. We can't take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ if we don't understand where they come from. We must look beyond the fruit of fantasies to discover the root. I had a woman from Oklahoma bring her 11-year-old daughter to me in Texas. The issue was that her 11-year-old daughter was caught looking at pornography and her 4-year-old sister had been exposed. And so I started asking lots and lots of questions of Megan as to what is it that you're looking for? And what kind of feelings does it create in you? And what kind of feelings were you feeling before you even sat down to the computer sort of a thing? And what I learned is that four years prior when her mother was pregnant with her younger sister, they had had a boating accident and her dad had been killed. And she said, I can remember before my dad died. My mom would braid my hair and she would do my makeup and she would take me to the mall and we would shop and we had a really great time. But she said, Since my dad died, my mom hasn't done any of those things. All she does is walk around the house and do laundry and clean and yell at me and my sister. She said, And my sister's never gotten to see her as a happy person because she was pregnant, you know, she was in utero when her dad died. And I asked her, I said, Megan, what words do you put into the search engine when you're sitting down to surf for porn. I said, are you looking for a man and woman having sex, thinking that she was just naturally curious? She said, no, that's gross, which an 11-year-old typically does think that's gross. I said, are you looking for two women together? And she said, no, that's even grosser. And I said, well, what exactly are you looking for? She said, I'm just looking for a woman pleasing herself. And I said, what is it about that image that intrigues you? And she said, they always look so happy because they're smiling and they always look like they're in control. What do you think that was indicative of? I don't ever see my mom smile and her grief is way out of control. And I think that her exposing her four-year-old sister to that was really her subconscious way of playing the big sister role to say, not all women are like our mom. There are women out there who are happy and who are powerful and who do have pleasure in their lives. Here, let me show you some pictures of that. But I came back to the mom and said, I'm not blaming you for Megan's issue, but I believe the connection is that She is trying to call attention to your need for grief counseling. Is there any way that you would work with me to grieve the loss of your husband? She did it with a happy heart. Megan is now 16 years old, doing so, so much better, reconnected with her mom. The the family needed that to move on beyond that incredible pain that that had them all really so stuck. Number seven... The sexual brain's job is to compartmentalize pain long enough to experience euphoric pleasure. I had a couple of uh, case studies I wanted to share on this one. Uh, One was Michelle came to one of my first women at the well workshops long, long ago. And her big shameful secret was that she was addicted to porn. Not her husband. She was. And I said, what are the keywords you put into your search engine? And she said... Well, I look for threesomes. And I said, well, that's one of the most common searches on the planet. And she said, no, it's not the kind of threesome that most people look for. I'm not looking for two women and a man. She said, I'm looking for two men and a woman. And I said, well, tell me about your family of origin. And what I learned is that she had an older brother and a younger brother and two parents who were stoners. And what they would often do is lock themselves in the bedroom and get higher than a kite. And it was during those times that her older brother would drag her into the room that he shared with his younger brother and molest her. And her only hope for being rescued, because she knew that her parents were totally checked out and would never hear anything, was if the younger brother used the key underneath the baseboard to let himself into the bedroom to disrupt the cycle. So you can see how from a very early age she was fantasizing about there being two men, but it, was, it wasn't for pleasure, it was for survival. But you can see how that would have translated into her adult fantasies of a woman having two men, but she's not in danger, there's not a threat, she's enjoying it. So it recreated the scenario, but... Somehow in her mind, she won this time, but of course you don't win with being addicted to porn. But for her to make that connection, that that was really about the trauma that she felt being held captive in her bedroom by her older brother and desperate for her younger brother to rescue her was very eye-opening for her. Then I had a 31-year-old client come to me. She was bewildered. She was one of the shut-down ones. She had absolutely no sexual desire for her husband, and the reason was because she was also incredibly... Mortified by the sexual thoughts that went through her brain when she was sexually aroused But the nature of the sexual thoughts that went through her brain was that they were lesbian fantasies and she said, I'm so afraid that if I took the advice of Oprah or Ellen or so many of the other people on the planet, that if you have those type of fantasies, you're probably a lesbian. You just need to go have an experiment and, and see if that's what you really prefer and just come out of the closet. So she had just tried to shut herself down sexually altogether because sex with her husband meant that these fantasies would come up. And so we did a sexual history together, and I was looking for the connection between her lesbian fantasies and her past, but I didn't see anything that would explain it. Her husband had really been her only sexual encounter, but it was like God opened up my brain and dropped a, an ID in. And he said, find out about her broader history, not just her sexual history. And so what I learned is that when she was 14 years old, She had an 11-year-old sister who went to spend the night with friends. And that night, lightning struck the roof of that house and it burned to the ground. And everyone inside was killed, including her sister. And as a result of that, her mother had totally shut down. And I asked her, what type of counseling did you get when you lost your only sibling? Crickets. Nothing. I said, what type of counseling did your parents get when they lost their youngest child? Nothing they had just been putting one foot in front of the other trying to go on with life and stuff it in the basement So what do you think i'm going to test you? What do you think her lesbian fantasies were really trying to say to her soul? It was about her sister. It was about the loss not just of her sister, but also of her mom It was about the fact that at a very pivotal age in her sexual development She lost the two females closest to her her sister physically and her mother emotionally And that that was just trying to recreate a resemblance of female-to-female intimacy because that was what she was most comfortable with because she wasn't close to her father at all. He was a traveling salesman. She had no brothers. So females represented closeness, safety, comfort, connection. So it had nothing to do with the fact that she wanted to be sexual with another woman. She was just trying to compartmentalize her pain long enough to experience pleasure. And the biggest pain she had had in her life was losing her sister. So you can see how the fantasy totally made sense. So then I asked her, I said, you know, I know that you have fasted, you have prayed, you have begged God for years to take this away from you. What if God doesn't? What if he leaves this as a thorn in your side? And she said, now that I know where it comes from, now that I know that it's just a root of, you know, from my trauma, from losing my sister, she said, it makes total sense. I'm not going to let it have any more power over me. She said, my only, she said, even if God doesn't cure me on this side of heaven, I know that on the other side of heaven, I'll be reunited with my sister and my mother, and it'll be as if nothing had ever happened. And so I'm trusting that God's grace is sufficient for me. But she said, my only fear is that my husband would feel as if I'm being unfaithful to him. If I'm fantasizing about someone totally different, not a particular person, just in general of just being with another woman. And I said, the only way that you're going to ever get that comfort and security is to test the theory and tell your husband. So we invited him to a coaching session and we explained how the sexual fantasies are often just the brain's way of trying to heal itself. We explained what she had wrestled with since the beginning of their marriage, explained what the connection was with her sister he said put it that way that makes total sense And he said not only am I not offended But I promise you I will never take advantage of that fantasy Because you know, there are some men on the planet who would be like well, who can we find to come and join us in bed? No. know, he said your pain is sacred to me and I will protect you from that fantasy I will never ever Try to get you to look at that type of porn or involve anybody else your pain is sacred and our marriage bed is holy And if that's what you need to entertain in order to experience orgasm, I am so not offended by that That woman is free today She is free She lives in a broken world, but she knows that this is not eternal that this is temporary And I think that that's what it means to take a thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. She is choosing to be faithful in her marriage because she's trusting that her lesbian fantasies are not about her sexual orientation. It's about her trauma from the past, which makes total sense. Does it not? Yeah. Number eight, regarding sexual dreams or fantasies involving a certain person, it's never about that person. He or she is merely an archetype that plays a certain role in the dreamer's ideal scenario, which often serves to recreate a particular dynamic in order to win this time. The most graphic illustration of this notion is several years ago, even before I was in coaching... Um, I was at a workshop for my own sexual issues and we were partnered with other people to take a walk and talk and get to know some of their story. And I couldn't help but notice that Sarah had a scar from here to here. And so it's like an elephant in the living room of how do you have a conversation with someone without inquiring about that? So I asked, do you mind if I ask how you got that scar? And she told me that when she... Became an adult and moved out of her parents' house. She rented an apartment. And one day, someone came knocking at the door, posing as a pest control man. And she was on the phone, but she let him in. And um, as soon as she hung up the phone, he took the cord of his machine and wrapped it around her neck. Forced her to the ground. Raped her. Slit her throat. And left her for dead. But she didn't die. She was in the hospital for many, many weeks. And upon discharge, she was told, you really need to get some psychological counseling. But she hadn't had the chance to yet before her friends came over to that apartment when she got to come home from the hospital and said, we got to get you out of this place because this is where the trauma happened. Let's go to the bars. Let's go drink. Let's go dance. So Sarah was going to these bars, numbing her pain with enough alcohol to lower her defenses, and she was zeroing in on particular men Taking them home and as soon as she would close the door she was on top of them She didn't give them a chance to come on to her. She immediately she was the predator What do you think she was doing? She was recreating a scenario in order to win this time No way would she ever feel powerless again. She would exert her power over them and the interesting thing is that when her counselor had asked her, what do all these men have in common? They were all tall, dark, and olive skinned, which resembled her rapist. She was trying to recreate the scenario to win this time. But thankfully, she had gotten into enough good counseling that she recognized that this is, this is spinning my wheels. I'm never going to regain my sense of power doing something so stupid as this. So just remember, and you know, obviously it was never—it wasn't about those guys in the bar. It was about what they represented because of how they looked, which is often uh, often the case when you have them do a sexual history worksheet. That there's something that surfaces there. That there's a connection between these people. Number nine: If we see a particular fantasy uh, terrible, or I'm sorry, if we find a particular fantasy terribly troubling, we have two options: we can change the dynamics of the fantasy. Or we can change our response to it. And so there's a particular, um, uh, I won't bother going into this because you can read it uh, at another time. But you can retrain the sexual brain. If there are parts of the fantasy that is really troubling to you that you feel like does not line up with your spiritual values, you can tweak it. Because here's the thing, in a fantasy, you are the storyteller. You control who the characters are, what they represent, what age they are, what sexuality they are, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You control the story. And so if there are parts of it that really, really bother you, you can retrain your brain to think of it in healthier terms. And the main thing that I say is don't reward that particular troubling fantasy with an orgasm because you're basically just training your brain to stay deep in that rut. Even if you need to say to your spouse, I'm really wrestling with that fantasy that I find so troubling. So I'm gonna press the pause button on our lovemaking. I'm gonna go sit, have a cup of tea, say a prayer, meditate for a few minutes, I'll be back. A spouse who understands what they're trying to do, I hope would celebrate the fact that they're taking control of their sexual brain. They're trying to rewire it in a healthier direction that they can be comfortable with. But uh, another uh, case study, that kind of brings this to light. There was a woman who came to a woman at the well last summer. They had been married 21 years and her husband was a sexy marriage radio listener. And he said to her, we either have to work on our sex life or work on the divorce. But the choice is yours. But he was tired of after 21 years, begging, begging, begging. And the thing that he wanted most was, was for them to freely engage in oral sex. The thing that she wanted least was to receive oral sex. It wasn't about performing. She didn't have a problem with that, but she did not want to receive oral sex from him. And I said, okay, there's got to be a psychological route to this because most women find that to be quite pleasurable. So asking her questions about her childhood, what I learned is that at three years old, she was often staying with an elderly man in the neighborhood named Pop Pop, who would babysit for the local moms if they just needed to run errands without kids. You see where this is going, don't you? So at three years old, she distinctly remembers Pop-Pop. This is one of her earliest memories. Pop-Pop touched her inappropriately. And she said what she remembers most isn't how it felt, but the smell on his fingers. Well, what three-year-old is taught personal hygiene? So, you know, of course, any cracker crevice that hasn't been washed regularly is going to have a smell. But you know, she, did, she couldn't process that. But then when she was 12... She was at a slumber party where there were other girls in the neighborhood who were talking about how they used to stay with Pop Pop too. And several of them had said that Pop Pop put his face down there and used his tongue. And so for her to go, wait a minute, Pop Pop did that to them, but he didn't do that to me. She assumed it was because there's no way that she would have been palatable to a human being because of that smell that she remembers. So she had it stuck in her brain that there's no way that my husband would ever enjoy doing that to me because of how my vagina in particular smells or tastes. For her husband to learn that that's what it was rooted in, because he thought it was a trust issue. He thought that she just could not trust him. And he was like, why in the world would you not trust me? He had no idea that she had been sexually abused and traumatized in this way. So for her to go back home and say, this is the real reason why I've never been open to that. And for him to convince her that I find you quite delectable, Please trust me with this. And for her to receive that, they're going through a new, they're an honeymoon phase of their marriage over the past year. Yeah, yeah. And they actually have become marriage coaches to help other couples discover what is the root of what's holding you back in bed. Because when you ask enough questions about their childhood, it's not hard to make these connections and figure out that, yeah, this isn't, this isn't something... In the marriage. This is about what you brought into the marriage that you've never processed. So, number 10, to control our fantasies rather than allowing them to control us doesn't mean that we never have them, but rather that we never act on them in an unbiblical way. Remember, even Jesus dealt with sexual thoughts and feelings and proved that there is no sin in being tempted. And so, I just want to close with this particular question, and we alluded to it on stage as we were closing with John. If everyone on the planet could learn to look at their sexual fantasies, no matter how socially unacceptable they are, if they could look at those fantasies and discover the root instead of trying to create fruit from those fantasies, what kind of impact would it have on our world if every single person on the planet learned to do that? Think about the fact that there would be no more extramarital affairs because people would know what that temptation is really all about and that it's not about the fact that I want to be unfaithful to my spouse. There would be no more sexual harassment in the workplace. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that picture. Yes, a lot of people find that picture a little comical. There would be no more rape, incest, molestation because men would know what they really want is not to traumatize and victimize a woman. There would be no more child predators. Picking up our kids off the street and using them for pornography or human trafficking or molestation or whatever There would be no more need for pornography if we could teach our kids You know how to avoid these types of traps and that it's perfectly normal for you to have certain sexual thoughts and fantasies As a matter of fact one more quick illustration Uh, there was a woman who contacted me and she said my son is about to get married and I know a secret that I feel as if I should maybe tell the woman that he's about to marry just to make sure that my about-to-be daughter-in-law knows what she's getting herself into. And this woman sounded like she had venom in her voice. And I said, well, please tell me what it is that you have on your son that you're thinking you should tell his future wife. And she said, well, when we were packing him up for college, I found a pair of women's underwear in his closet. And my immediate thought was that these belong to his girlfriend and they've been sexually active. And he was like, no, mom, that's not it. Those don't belong to her. And she said, well, who do they belong to? And he was like, they're mine. Okay. And she didn't ask any more questions. She should have, but she felt the need to tell her his about to be wife that just so you know, he has a panty fetish. And it's like, is that really necessary it, like you do realize that this could so traumatize his fiance that she may choose not to marry him Do you really want to rip the rug out from under his happiness? Is this really a deal breaker? Because like he said those panties didn't belong to another woman He bought those himself. I said, what do you think he bought them for? And she said, I have no idea and I said, let me tell you what he bought him for He bought them because of how they feel when he was creating a masturbatory experience for himself But it had nothing to do with being a pervert, I said, you know, little boys, even when they're being taken out of the bathtub, they're being dried off by a terry cloth towel, or they're laying on their parents' satin sheets, or they're you know, snuggling up against a pillow. They, a pillow. They notice that certain fabrics make them feel better than other fabrics, kind of like the pantyhose guy. And I said, I promise you, that's most likely all that it was about, because she had said that her husband, or that her son was a virgin. And so I said, is this really enough to undermine... His marital happiness. I don't think that it is. But if we could teach our kids that, you know what, you may have a sexual fantasy that it really goes against the grain that really isn't in line with your spiritual values or really makes you feel like a pervert, but I promise you, you're not. And if you're willing to talk to me or your dad or the youth pastor or, you know, or somebody who can help you make sense of it, I'll, I'll pay for you to see a counselor or whatever. I don't want you going through life feeling like you're a pervert because you're not. But I promise you that growing up in this world and in our household, you're going to have pain from childhood. And it may manifest itself Through certain fantasies and it's nothing that you Need to feel guilty about this is how the human brain Works if we could just give our kids that Freedom to know that they're sexual Beings and that there's nothing horribly wrong Or broken with them I think that that would make It a much healthier planet too because When they think that there's something wrong it creates The same spiral and they do think if they Think they're bad they start doing bad Things that becomes their identity So anyway I could go on and on about that But yeah think about the unplanned pregnancies That wouldn't occur about the abortions that wouldn't occur uh, about the stds that wouldn't occur if everybody could just take their thoughts captive because they understand the root and make those thoughts obedient to christ we wouldn't have all these sexual issues plaguing our society and so if you want to learn more about how to help other people understand these things my recommendation is the fantasy fallacy about exposing the deeper meaning behind sexual thoughts And then also for married couples, the passion principles about celebrating sexual freedom in marriage. Both of these books are written to both men and women. It's not exclusive. This is where I broke out of my writing to women mold and I wrote to both men and women in those particular books. And then also there are some cards on your table. If not, there's some in the back on, on the table on the way out the door about the women at the well four day intensive workshops that I host about five or six times a year for women to come and spend four days with eight to ten other women, other women completely anonymously to just unpack her sexual baggage and to experience healing in relationship because she was most likely wounded in relationship. And then just really quick, there's also some cards on your table about a mentorship program that I offer online. It's a 12 month mentorship called BLAST, which stands for building leaders, authors, speakers, and teachers. I know that many of you who are marriage ministry minded are also thinking in terms of launching blogs or writing books or creating speaking platforms or enlarging the ones that you already have. And so I hope that you'll look into that mentorship program if it's something that I can coach you through uh, blossoming and becoming more of what God has created you to be and to do. Any final quick questions? I think we have like one or two minutes. Is it okay if I bleed into the break by a couple minutes? Great. Anybody have any pressing questions that you think that the rest of the group would really benefit from hearing the answer to? Yes, sir. I'm sorry? Oh, the, the thing about if he can't cut the mustard, he can still lick the jar. <laughs> <laughs> but I also wonder if, if the freedom to fantasize wouldn't, couldn't possibly help some of the erectile dysfunction. You know about just fantasizing about your younger days and how very you used to be and what a great sex off y'all used to have before this became an issue. I would think could really build a man's confidence. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Alvin. I don't want to speak about the other guys. I never knew he, I mean, just, maybe just me, but I any don't sexual know. connotations? And it's not every man. That's why they call it a fetish. Uh, there's a quote that I put in my book from Thomas Sargent, who his fetish was uh, was rubber. And his what he thinks is, is that you're, you remember when uh, a long time ago, people used to put rubber sheets and rubber crib pads in the crib and they would have rubber toys to play with. And he suspects that as children touch themselves, that he maybe used some of these rubber toys. But his counselor said to him, well, you have two choices. You can give up the rubber or give up the guilt. He said, I decided to give up the guilt. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's it, yeah, yeah. People gravitate toward different things. Sex is weird. Can we all acknowledge that? Sex is weird. Sex is weird. And our sexuality is as unique as our thumbprint. It's all different for everybody. Yes, ma'am. Not necessarily. Sometimes fantasies are inbred, and, and what I mean by that is, like, people who look at porn and they want more and more intense porn, some of the stuff that they wind up getting into has nothing to do with their childhood origin. But there could be a reason why they're gravitating in that direction, so there could be. So, yeah. But if you if you have a fantasy, is there always something that, would you say, like, okay, like, if I have fantasy, should I look in my past? Absolutely. It wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt to see if there's a connection there. It would set you free to not be fearful that, oh, am I really wired that this is what I want? That I'll never find fulfillment unless I experience this. Because fantasies are not a roadmap to future fulfillment. They're a roadmap to your rocky past. And acting them out is often what creates an explosion in your world where your marriage and your life will never be the same. So really, fantasies are better left as fantasies. They serve a purpose when they're a fantasy, but it becomes a very destructive purpose when it becomes a reality. One more. Yes, Um, (laughs) ma'am. When it comes to biblical... A biblical perspective, you have to find a scripture supporting masturbation being sin. And I've searched and I've searched and I've, and I've talked and I've talked and asked people, there's not one. And so we de- We deal with two realms, biblical mandate, which it's not there and personal conscience. So for a person who feels as if that would be sin for them because of what it triggers, what it represents, whatever, then my suggestion is that they not do it, that they live in accordance with their spiritual values because you don't want your sexuality and your spirituality going off in different directions. But there are other people who tell me that they feel no conviction in that regard and that they feel as if their reasons for masturbating are quite holy because it, they don't want to be sexual outside of marriage or before marriage or whatever. But I think that where it crosses the line is when you start masturbating within marriage, because you don't want to heal the gap between you and your spouse, then you're, you're taking that energy and you're channeling it in a direction that it was never intended to. And I would also say that when you marry, uh, uh, masturbation with porn, that's a dangerous combination that you're you're doing things and you're hijacking the brain you're allowing your brain to be raped by that porn and now you're making associations that it's really hard for you to have an orgasm without the pornography and so it obviously has to be handled with kid gloves no pun intended uh, but it's a matter of personal conscience and if I could find a scripture supporting the fact that it's sin all the time across the board for everybody I would say it, but since it's not, I don't want to be a Pharisee and add to what God has said in his word. I assume that there's a reason that God didn't specifically say that it's a sin. And I think that because in some situations, it's just not. Uh, For example, like that woman whose husband is deployed overseas who asks, is it okay if I fantasize about my husband and is it okay if I masturbate to that because he's not coming home for 19 months? Do you think that that's a sin? Or for a man who uh, contacted us with Sexy Marriage Radio and said, I'm in my 70s and my wife died a year ago and my libido completely disappeared. But now after a year of mourning, it's come back full force, but I don't ever want to get remarried. Is it a sin if I just take care of this myself because I don't want to use or abuse another woman? I think that's a pretty honorable reason. And so you just, I, I, there's not a one size fits all answer for is masturbation a sin or not. I think you have to look at the situation and the person and what all it represents. Yeah, one more. I, I'm still confused about what. Um, like, for example, you mentioned George Clooney. So let's say some married woman is fantasizing about George Clooney. You know, she's, and of course, she's not going to really play this out because who knows where he is. Right. Like, <laughs> and she's not in his league anyway. Yeah. Here's my recommendation. I'm so glad you asked that question. Is that you can have a fantasy without putting a particular person's face in there. Fantasy is not about who the person is. It's about what role they play. And when you start putting in your boss's face or your pastor's face or your neighbor's face or your brother-in-law's face or, or whoever, that's when you get way over into really dangerous ground because you're, you're more prone to act out what you've been rehearsing. So it's okay that you need to create a role play in your head and you're involved in there somewhere. But don't start plugging real people into those other roles. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So thanks again for asking that question. I'm going to say a quick word of prayer. Thank y'all for making time for this particular workshop. I hope you've learned a lot. Father God, thank you so much for the gift of our sexuality and the gift of our sexual brains. But God, Satan has distorted it in so many different ways and feeling so tremendously guilty over every sexual thought or feeling that we have is one of the ways that he has distorted it. But Lord, we thank you for that Hebrews passage that tells us that you yourself was tempted in every way. So we know that you had sexual thoughts and feelings and you showed us that we can live a sinless life by not acting out on those sexual thoughts and feelings in inappropriate ways. But God, I pray that you would help every married couple channel all that sexual energy that is created by their brains and their blood flow into the marriage bed where it belongs. And we pray that marriages would become such a beautiful reflection of of Christ's commitment and his passion for his bride, the church. Thank you for this time together and for these people and for all of the marriages that they represent and for the ministry that they do to keep those marriages strong. In Jesus' name, amen.